Hey true crime besties, welcome back to an all new episode of Serialistly. Welcome back to an all-new bonus episode of Serialistly with me, Annie. I am here to break down all of the headlines that have happened in the true crime world this week. And let me just start by saying this. If the sound is a little bit different today, let me just explain why. We all know the saying, crime never sleeps, right? Well, it's not sleeping today either. I am actually away out of town on vacation right now celebrating my sister's 40th birthday. We are in the Bahamas, but I am jumping on here to give you guys the scoop of everything that has gone down this week in the true crime world because there has been a lot, guys. And so welcome officially to this week's headline highlights. Now, in today's episode, we are going to discuss the latest news on everything true crime related that has transpired since the last episode. This week was very, very busy, and like I said, we have got a lot to cover. We've got Carly Russell updates, we've got Lori Vallow Daybell, Rex Hewerman, the alleged, you know, Long Island serial killer, an ex-beauty queen who hired a hitman, and another woman who gave birth in a gas station in Houston and left her baby in the restroom, a la Alexi Treviso, very similar, very reminiscent of that case. So we have got a lot to unpack here. So with that, let's get right into it. On Friday, July 28th, Carly Russell was formally charged with two misdemeanors, false reporting to law enforcement and falsely reporting an incident. A lot of people, the police chief included, felt like she should have been charged with more, but that's the way that the law is in Alabama. So Carly turned herself in wearing a little black dress and she was booked in jail for one hour before she was ultimately released. In her mugshot, she was smiling ear to ear and it gave a lot of people just like the cringe vibes, unnerving. It didn't feel like she was super remorseful just by looking at the mugshot. And the fact of the matter is too, she was booked in on two misdemeanors at a $2,000 bond, meaning she only had to pay $200, 10% of that to get released. Kind of a little ridiculous if you ask me, but what do I know? That's just my opinion. The Hoover Police Department still have absolutely no idea where she was during the 49 hours that she disappeared either. There are rumors that she still is being looked at for more charges, but for now, we're just going to have to wait and see. So far, it is what it is with the two misdemeanors. Next up, we go into cult mom, doomsday mom, monster mom, evil bitch, whatever you want to call her, because I have got a ton of names for Miss Lori Vallow Daybell. And she was sentenced on Monday after she was found guilty back in May of this year of murdering her children and her then boyfriend's wife. Now, I actually did a bonus episode earlier this week solely covering this sentencing because, honestly, it did deserve its own episode. There were a lot of statements made, a lot of information given, and I felt like it did warrant its own episode. So if you are doing deep dives on that case or you've been following it, make sure to listen to that bonus episode, which is out now. And so during this whole sentencing, Lori finally broke her silence and guess what she said? She said that nobody was murdered, which 
obviously you can imagine that was a lot to take in. So I will link that episode in the show notes if you're interested in listening to the full breakdown on that. But quickly though, I do want to touch on Kay and Larry's response to Lori's atrociously offensive statement. I want to start though with her speaking. <laughs> when, when she said yes, you were both sitting in there, I could see you, what was going through your head? You know, I couldn't I, believe she was spouting off anything about religion and then using it to, again, back what she, her, her narrative. Um, but I, I just, um, my eyes were probably, if someone was recording me, my eyes were probably rolling all over the place. <laughs> I saw your eyes rolling all over the place. I was looking over to you because I think everyone's jaw was dropping. Yeah. She starts out with a Bible verse. Yeah. And uh, Jesus understands her and, yeah and, we, and I looked over to you guys and you looked at Larry and then rolled and laughed a little bit it's just it was really unbelievable yeah well I, I, I still can't uh, I'm, I can't honestly imagine what she was trying to do but it was a failure she really embarrassed herself more than she already has There isn't a person in that uh, courthouse that actually believed anything she said. And the simple fact to me that her attorney led off with the ridiculous (laughs) statement that he led off with was almost insulting. It, it, It really was. And then for her to follow up and her statement the way she did. You know, I said a long time to go, and and when this case was starting, when it was in underway during trial, it's impossible to defend the indefendable. And making up lies is not how you defend it. I would have had much more respect for if she just said, can I ask forgiveness? Well, she would never do that. That would mean she but was wrong. I'm, I'm saying <laughs> that's would have been that would have been what if I was in her position, it was the time for her to come clean in front of the judge, in front of the the the, the audience out there, in in front of the world. world. Is just come clean and say, look, I made a bad mistake. I made a lot of bad mistakes, and I ask forgiveness. I know I'm going to prison for life, and I'll I'll be carried out in a body bag. And can I, I I'm asking for forgiveness instead of spewing what what she spewed and using religion. Is a bigger insult. What the judge, uh, we had to, uh, on our statements, we had to strike a few things uh, to to accommodate the judge's uh, court orders. Order. And one of the things I had to strike was absolutely my favorite part of my statement. And it was that I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it was. Um, I wish that I, I hope the judge uh, 
doesn't give her any leniency because the only way she should ever leave prison is in a body bag. That was my, like at the very that's end of my statement, and that's one of the things I had to take out. But that was the most, my favorite part. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The next day, she was booked into the Pocatello Women's Correctional Center, where she was still smirking in her mugshot and had her own little bootleg wedding band on her hand, which just honestly makes her that much more of a bigger pile of shit, in my opinion, than she already is. It's like she stands by her actions and is still choosing her loser-ass husband that looks like Peter Griffin from Family Guy over her children, who, by the way, according to my poll on Twitter or what people are now calling it as, 63.4% of you guys voted that Chad is not in love with Lori anymore, which makes me wonder if he will flip on her when his trial comes. And I have to say, at first, I was really hoping that Lori would have at least been able to kind of bounce back into some version of reality and turn on Chad at her trial. But as we know, unfortunately, that never happened. So now I can only hope that Chad turns on her, and maybe that will burst this little fantasy bubble of delusion that she clearly still lives in. Or, as Judge Boyce more eloquently put it, like this. You justified all of this by going down a bizarre religious rabbit hole, and clearly you are still down there. I don't think that that's a stretch since Chad has already put plans into motion, at least to his children, saying that he was framed. Now here is Larry and Kay's take on the wedding band mugshot and what they believe Chad will do. Why do you uh, think she did that? The ring on her finger is for her last grasp at being married <laughs> to, to her Chad. The spider. And I can just about guarantee her right guarantee everybody right now that her uh, uh, that uh, Chad's attorneys are going to throw her under not a bus but a steamroller. Yeah. And I, I bet he's so, thinking twice about uh, well maybe I need to just rethink all this and cop a plea because look what happened to her and and they i think the evidence is stronger against him Lori and chad have not spoken at all since that infamous phone call where Lori called him from jail and chad said said um you know that the fbi was at the property searching his property and Lori never once said you know why on earth would they be looking for my children on your property? And instead, she just was very cold and very okay, very matter-of-fact. Remember that call? But anyways, before I get myself worked up all over again, let's hear about what Lori is likely going through and now that she is booked into big girl prison. Nate Eaton outside the Pocatello Women's Correctional Center, and this is where Lori Vallow Daybell was booked on Tuesday. They actually call it the intake process. They don't refer to the people who are here as inmates, rather residents. This is the largest women's facility in the state of Idaho in the Idaho Department of Correction. Around 350 residents can stay here at a time. Maximum security residents are brought here. Women on death row, they stay here as well. And of course, Lori Vallow Daybell will stay here until the day she dies unless she's transferred to Arizona or something happens with those uh, Maricopa County charges. Now I spoke with the warden here. Her name is has been with the prison system for uh, a lot of her career. Janelle Clement, she has been 
Her name is Janelle Clement. She has been with Something Happens with those uh, Maricopa County charges. Now, I spoke with the warden here. Her name is Janelle Clement. She has been with the prison system for uh, a lot of her career. She can't talk about specific residents. She can't talk specifically about Lori Vallow-Daybell's case, but she gave us some insight as far as how things are run here. What is the intake process like? So they'll come on a bus or a transport from county jail. They'll come in through our receiving area in intake. They'll come off the bus and they will be given clothing items and they'll be met with a case manager and have a nursing assessment. And from there, they will be moved down to a housing unit. Over the next uh, 14 days to four weeks, they'll be given different assessments through dental, medical, mental health, and case management needs to assess what else they may need during their stay. What are the residents here doing during the day? A lot of people think in prison you're watching television all day and not doing much more, but we were just saying a moment ago, there's a lot actually happening. Absolutely. They have an opportunity to go to education, to receive, if they work on their high school diploma, we offer college courses so they can get their education, they can work and hold a job, whether it's janitorial, whether it's working in property, working in our kitchen, working in our correctional industries program, there are a lot of opportunities to work and things for them to do during the day. When you have people come here, residents come here, some may have committed crimes that have been on the news, might be more high profile than some of the other residents who we may have never heard about. Is there any difference in what happens with them, how they're treated, what they do every day? No, everyone's treated fairly and respectfully and their confidentiality is maintained, so they're gonna go through the same process as anyone. If there are any residents who create problems or you know want to fight or you know cause harm to another resident I'm sure that that's dealt with and people could be moved around absolutely that's swiftly addressed and those are dealt with for safety and security reasons and placed in the necessary housing assignments what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about the prison system at least here in Idaho sure um, I feel like that oftentimes people don't know that there are good things happening in prison and that we're working really hard to help people return back to society to be a better member of society, a better neighbor, a better friend, a better, their moms, their daughters, their sisters. And so we're working to help change people's lives and impact them so that they can return back to their families and communities and be productive citizens. So again, this is the place where Lori Vallow Daybell will spend the rest of her life pending those charges in Arizona. The Maricopa County Attorney's Office say that they plan to extradite her back to the state of Arizona, and that could take anywhere between the next month or up to six months. It's just kind of a wait and see process. Reporting in Pocatello, I'm Nate Eaton, EastAdahoNews.com. Now look, I appreciate the warden's optimism, but Lori isn't going to be rehabilitated or let out of prison, except for in a body bag, in my opinion. So it really doesn't matter to me how many sewing classes she takes or whatever amends she tries to make. She will always be a child killer in my and everyone else's book. As of Wednesday, the state of Arizona has filed for the expedition process in her case to begin. And interestingly, in the extradition filing, her charges are now first-degree premeditated murder, which is eligible for the death penalty. So now moving on to the accused Long Island serial killer Rex Hewerman. He was in court on Tuesday. Video cameras are not allowed in New York except for in some trials, which even then it is usually limited to opening and closing statements. So there was not a lot of information and not a live feed available for his hearing. But here is what Suffolk County officials confirmed in their press release following the hearing. 
First, some family members were present in court, but we aren't sure which ones. 2,500 pages of discovery were shared and are under seal. His wife was apparently upset over the state of their house and alleges court action that she may be taking against them for flipping the home inside out and wrecking it. And the DA's response to this was, and I quote, she can pursue whatever remedies she feels are necessary. Next, investigators are still processing material removed from the home, which may take weeks or longer. DNA collected already declared admissible in a court of law by precedent, and the defense was handed over 8 terabytes of data, which is certainly a lot. However, in comparison, I just want to level set, Brian Koberger's defense team was handed 51 terabytes of data. Now, moving along over into some breaking news that came out this week that we're following closely, a former Georgia beauty pageant queen was arrested in the Bahamas after police discovered evidence of a murder-for-hire plot on her phone. Authorities allege that 36-year-old Lindsay Shiver, a woman from Georgia, has been arrested and charged in connection with conspiring to kill her husband, who briefly played on the Atlanta Falcons and who is now an executive vice president of a life insurance company. Lindsay was allegedly having an affair with a 28-year-old man at the time named Terrence Bethel, who was also arrested as part of this murder plot and the alleged hitman, Farron Newbold, also has been charged. So this case is a pretty crazy one, because apparently the law enforcement in the Bahamas were looking into a supposed break-in at a local restaurant in Great Guana City. To find clues, they were checking out the phone of the person that they thought did it, specifically their WhatsApp chats. Then, surprise, surprise, they found a bunch of chats about a plan to commit a murder. I'm assuming that the police are able to go through a phone without a warrant there, but I'm not entirely sure. I mean, to be honest, they're not in the United States and the police in the Bahamas aren't exactly bound by the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, so who knows. There's not too much known about what exactly the messages said yet, but it was enough to arrest and charge three people, so clearly a lot. The Shivers, along with their three sons, were living in Georgia but vacationed in the Bahamas, where they had a vacation home. And this is where Lindsay, the mother, allegedly met her boyfriend, Terrence. As for the motive, it appears that the couple was knee-deep in a contentious divorce. Reports suggest that Robert, the father, initiated the divorce after discovering Lindsay's infidelity. Lindsay, in her defense, claimed that she had suffered physical and psychological abuse from Robert. She stated in court documents that any affairs that she had were during their separation and were tactically approved by Robert. Reports that have come out say that Robert wanted primary custody of the children and their $2.5 million home in Georgia. He argued that Lindsay was not entitled to alimony either. Lindsay, on the other hand, was pushing for custody, alimony, child support, and the house. She even accused Robert of taking the children at one point and not returning them until the police intervened. And apparently, Lindsay was supposed to give a deposition in the divorce proceedings before all of this happened. According to a Bahamas news outlet, a judge set a $100,000 cash bond for Lindsay Shiver, the former pageant queen, that was implicated in the alleged plot to kill her husband. Under the terms set by a Supreme Court judge, she must remain in the Bahamas until at least October 5th on the hearing date. 
Now, their news reported that late last Tuesday, the judge set bond at $20,000 for each of the other two suspects in the case, her alleged lover and the hitman. Terrence Bethel and Farron Newbold, also referred to as the um, Farron Roberts Jr., must adhere to a curfew while Lindsay is required to wear an ankle monitor. Robert Shiver has not told the couple's three children of this murder plot, apparently, and this is according to the New York Post. The story is still developing, and there's not quite enough information available to do a full video on everything yet, but rest assured, I will be watching this one for sure and hope to be able to give you guys a full breakdown either here on the podcast or over on YouTube when I can. In another breaking news story this week, Texas authorities announced that they were looking for an unidentified woman who was caught on camera pulling up to a Shell gas station in Houston, walking inside, allegedly giving birth in the bathroom, and dumping the baby. The woman was then seen on video minutes later getting back into her car and driving off. In the video, it's not as clear how big her stomach was, and we don't know any of the details yet as far as how far along she was in her pregnancy either. But then yesterday afternoon, which was Wednesday afternoon, authorities announced that they had identified and arrested the woman on Tuesday while she was attempting to flee the U.S. at the Mexican border. According to KPRC Channel News to Houston, Houston police announced Wednesday that a woman who is believed to be the mother of an infant who was found dead in a gas station bathroom in southwest Houston has been arrested. According to police, Diana Guadalupe Zavala Lopez, 25 years old, was arrested Tuesday in Brownsville. She is charged with felony tampering with evidence, human corpse, and will be extradited to Harris County. Houston Police Department has released a surveillance video of the woman from July 31st, and the incident happened on April 2nd. Now, this is a really interesting detail, because if this happened on April 2nd, why were the police just now asking the public for help in identifying her, especially when she is clearly seen on the gas station surveillance footage? We don't know the answer to that. But anyways, police say, and I quote, the infant girl was found at around 4.25 a.m. at a gas station located on the 13000 block of South Post Oak Road. The surveillance video shows a woman walking into the gas station's bathroom and leaving about 15 minutes later in a white Cadillac. Several hours later, a customer went to use the bathroom, found the infant, and called 911. Houston Fire Department paramedics arrived at the scene and attempted to save the baby, but authorities determined that she had been dead for hours prior to being found. Police said it appears that the woman gave birth to the baby inside that bathroom and left. So, is this another Alexi Treviso or Alexis Avia? Maybe, but we don't know for sure. As of right now, it's not clear if the baby was stillborn, alive, or what as the charge against her right now is only one felony, tampering with evidence, a human corpse. This is another case that is still developing, and a lot of details are just now starting to come out, but this is another case that I will be following closely. Obviously, I think most people wouldn't just think that they could somehow dispose of a baby and think that they could get away with it in general, but honestly, the number of young women doing this lately is absolutely unsettling and truly crazy. Next up, I want to talk about a woman who escaped a homemade dungeon. 
According to the Daily Mail, a woman has escaped from a cinder block cell hidden inside a rental home of an Oregon town mayor, where she had been held captive by a fake undercover cop. The woman was kidnapped on July 15th, just after midnight. She was sexually assaulted, kidnapped, and driven more than seven hours away, according to a criminal complaint. Hidden in the makeshift cell, the woman slept and awoke with the realization that she would likely die if she didn't attempt to escape. She broke down the door, leaving her hands bloody. She started punching the metal door and broke some of its welded joints, creating a small opening which she climbed through. FBI released very eerie photos of the tiny quarters in which he had held her captive. And they say the police captain, Rob Reynolds, said in a press conference on Wednesday that she beat the door down with her hands until they were bloody, all in order to break free. Her quick thinking and will to survive may have saved other women from a similar nightmare. On July 15th, Zubery allegedly traveled from his Klamath Falls rental to Seattle, where he solicited the woman for prostitution along Aurora Avenue, a known area for prostitution in the area. The woman told the cops that he told her he was an undercover cop before he showed her a badge. He pointed a stun gun at her, placed her in the backseat of his car after he had handcuffed her, and then put leg irons on her. Then it drove more than seven hours to him, his home in the Klamalatha Falls, I hope I'm saying that right, only to stop when he pulled his vehicle over and forced the victim to perform both oral and vaginal sex. The affidavit states that he attempted to have anal sex with the victim, but stopped after the victim pleaded for him not to do it. When they arrived, he put his captor into the cell and he said he was leaving to do paperwork. The woman briefly slept and then awoke to that realization that she would likely die if she didn't attempt to escape. So that's when she started punching the metal door, broke some of those welded joints, and created a small opening in which she climbed through. The victim saw his vehicle parked in the garage, opened it, grabbed his gun, and then took off. She left behind blood on a wooden fence that she had climbed over to escape before finally flagging down a passing driver who called 911. Investigators said that when they searched the home and the garage, they found that makeshift cell. They also found the woman's purse and handwritten notes. So you can click on the link for the handwritten notes pictures. I will leave that in the show notes below. So a lot of these cases that just broke this week, I am going to follow very closely. The hitman for hire in the Bahamas, this woman who escaped, all of it. So make sure that if you're not subscribed to the podcast already, you take a quick second, just hit that check mark. That way you'll be notified of these updates if I put full bonus episodes out on this case. Or, of course, to get the full video version, see the footage, the images, all of that, go check out my YouTube, 10 to Life, where I post the full case videos for a lot of these true crime cases. All right, guys, so let me know how you're liking this whole headline highlights that we're doing every Thursday. As a reminder, this is a new series. I'm going to drop it every single Thursday, giving you guys the quick summary of everything that's gone down in the true crime world that week. So if you could just take a quick minute to leave a rating for the podcast and a review. And in the review, let me know if you like headline highlights. Let me know what else you like about the podcast, what aspects you like about it. That way I can continue to refine the podcast and give you guys the content that you like and that you want rather than something that you don't want. So please take five seconds to leave a rating and review. 
All right, guys, thanks so much for tuning in with me today in today's headline highlights. And I will be talking to you again very, very soon. And especially this Monday with a brand new insane true crime deep dive case. All right, guys, your true crime bestie is signing off. Have a great rest of your week. I'm going to go enjoy the Bahamas. I'm going to celebrate. You can get some of that behind the scenes action over on my Instagram, which is at underscore Annie Elise. And wish my sister a happy birthday if you're over there. Amy Amy is turning 40. So we are going to celebrate. I'm going to go take a shot of tequila and I'm going to enjoy the beach. I will talk to you guys very soon. Have a great week and I'll catch you Monday. Bye.